0: Thank you, Marlene. Wonderful scripture-saturated prayer. Good example for us. All right, Uh, we are beginning Hebrews today. Beginning a new series through the book of Hebrews. Um, For those of you that like to look ahead, we're looking at about 25 sermons with a few breaks. Uh, That will take us at least into April. Um, One of those breaks just starting Next month is the, the pastors of the Three Strand Churches have been working on a uh, short series, three-week series on church planting. It's been a conversation we've been having um, throughout the year, and we wanted to do it a joint series on church planting. So the first three weeks of October, I will preach the first one, and then I'm going to go around to two of the other Three Strand Churches and Jim Fickert from Communion and Patrick Edwards from Anchored Faith, formerly Seven Lakes Baptist, will we'll each take a turn here to preach a, a, another sermon in that series. So that will be the first three weeks of October. The first few verses of Hebrews is, all, is what we're going to cover today. Uh, act as a good introduction to this book, so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to cover those, and that will introduce us to this book. Uh, the book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Jesus. You know, the little subtitles that most of our Bibles have. Really, every subtitle in this book could say the supremacy of Jesus. Um, And every sermon that we preach could be titled the supremacy of Jesus. That's what it's about. It might feel redundant at times, even though there's, there's a lot packed in here. There's a lot to work with and consider and digest. But maybe there's a lesson even in that fact that this isn't something that we should ever tire of we should never cease to consider and r- wrestle with and behold the supremacy and significance of Jesus and never cease to align our lives with that fact. The glory of God in the person and work of Jesus should be the theme and the story of our lives. If our lives were like the, a college degree, that we were taking for the rest of our lives. The subject of that degree should be the supremacy of Jesus over all things and in all things. So before we jump in, let me just give a few words by way of introduction to what Hebrews is and the context of this book. We don't really know who the author is. It doesn't tell us. Um, Throughout church history. There's been various ideas suggested. Um, oftentimes Paul was thought to be the author, sometimes Apollos and, and other people, um, but we really don't know and most people today just are resigned that we don't know who the author is. We don't know a ton about the audience either. Uh, so the, the title Hebrews comes from a traditional title that was attached to it that said to the Hebrews. So that's why it's called Hebrews. Um, so it was assumed that the audience was mostly Hebrew or Jewish Christians. That is, Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, was the Christ, was God. And it's quite obvious from how it's written with all of its references to the Old Testament, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, as we've looked at Psalms. So lots of references to the Old Testament. It's quite obvious that the audience was at least familiar with Jewish Things, history, traditions, institutions. So it was probably mostly Jews, but also some Gentiles who were also familiar. Maybe they had converted to Judaism first and then converted to to Christianity. Beyond that, um, it's clear that the author knows the audience fairly well. He addresses them personally. So he has a good, good knowledge of them. And then as far as their situation, we don't know a ton we can only make some educated guesses. It seems that they've endured some persecution as Christians, and they probably they assume that there is more to come, more persecution to come. And so there's a lot of warnings in the book for them to endure patiently and faithfully. Perhaps they were tempted to give up, grow weary, and lose faith. And then lastly, the book of Hebrews is essentially a sermon. It's really the best way to think to see it, as far as style of writing. It's it's a long-written sermon. Um, It it contains both teaching doctrinal aspects, and then it it goes back and forth between teaching and, and, and doctrine, and then warnings and exhortations. Here's how to live in light of this teaching, this doctrine of who Jesus is. And it goes back and forth, back and forth between teaching and then personal application exhortation. So, It is like a long sermon. So let's jump right in. Like I said, we're only going to cover three verses today. So we'll give us time to slow down a bit and carefully consider how this book opens. Verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So right off the bat, we are reminded that we have a speaking God. We have a God who has revealed himself to humanity. And who has done that in large part by speaking words. God doesn't only act and then leave it up to us to try to figure out what that might mean. He He interprets his own acts for us. He tells us what he's like, what he's doing. As I've said many times before, this means that God desires to be known. God desires to be known. He he doesn't only speak so that we might know how to live, although that's true, or that we might get salvation, although that's true as well. He also speaks that we might know him and be known by him. And he's been doing this for a long time. As the author says, long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, the prophets. So the author is apparently a a Jewish individual speaking of God, speaking through their Jewish ancestors, the prophets. Prophets were, were individuals whom God spoke to and through to the people. They were the mouthpieces of God to the people. Many of these prophets, we we have biblical books by their names that tell about their words and their lives. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, etc. We have other prophets in scripture that we don't have books with their name attached to them, but we do know of their lives and their words, like um, Elijah and Elisha and Moses. So over thousands of years, God has been speaking to humanity. Revealing himself to humanity, calling humanity into a relationship with him as their creator. Calling humanity to trust him and worship him alone. This long ago is referring to what we call the Old Testament, right? And we can learn a lot about God from this speaking. Even though it's the Old Testament and we, as we'll see today, Jesus fulfills it. Jesus is a fuller revelation of God. Still, this is God's speech and God's revelation. And our understanding of Jesus is weakened if we do not consider it, if we ignore all that came before him. And that's part of what Hebrews is helping us to do. Hebrews is helping under us to understand who Jesus is and what he's done by, co- continu- by continually comparing him to everything that came before To all of these Old Testament individuals, institutions, and practices, so we're going to have to we're going to do a lot of page turning, or app scrolling, or whatever. We're going to have to go back into the Old Testament a lot and consider um, all that came before. That's what Hebrews is going to have us do. But then the the author says, in these last days. So long ago, God did this. God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days. And the idea is that something dramatically changed with Jesus. That there was a, a new thing that happened with Jesus such that it's appropriate to refer to everything that came after him as the last days. Just like we literally mark time with the arrival of Jesus, that is a very biblical idea. Jesus is at the center of a defining moment in God's grand plan of redemption. God's grand plan of redemption and of displaying his glory is made clear and inaugurated in Jesus. And so the author says, He has spoken to us by his Son. In Jesus, God was and is speaking. And the implication here is not only that he's speaking to us through Jesus' words, but through Jesus' life as well. As the very next verse will say, and we'll get into this, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. So if that's the case, then everything about Jesus, words and actions, is God's speech, is God's revelation, because Jesus is God. Jesus is not just like an Old Testament prophet whom sometimes speaks for God, but other than that is a sinful, error-prone human. Jesus is not like how Roman Catholics see the Pope with papal infallibility, meaning that on certain occasions when they're offering official teachings on faith and morals, they cannot err, but otherwise they're a sinful, error-prone human being. No, it's not only certain statements of Jesus that are God's revealing speech. And we get to kind of pick and choose. His whole life, every second and word and action, reveals with 100% accuracy the Creator God. When Jesus' disciple John wrote about Jesus in his, in his gospel, he made this point by calling Jesus the Word. As you may know, the Gospel of John begins... By speaking of the word, or in Greek, logos, which means word or speech. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Jesus is the very word of God, the revelation of God. God is revealing himself to us in the most clearest and dramatic way. So it makes sense for us to consider who Jesus is. And that's what the rest of the book of Hebrews is going to do, beginning with the very next phrase, understanding the revelation that is in Jesus, that is of Jesus. God is inviting us to know who He is, His character, His ways, His will, His salvation. If we are to know God, we must consider Jesus. And that's the title, as you see on the front of your bulletins, that's the title of this sermon, Consider Jesus. And that phrase comes from chapter 3, where it calls us to consider Jesus, behold Jesus. Come to know Jesus more in both depth of knowledge and depth of dependence and trust and love so right away, the author begins to list the excellencies of Jesus. So verses 2 and and 3. These are the last two verses we're covering. And there are seven statements in here about the excellencies of Jesus. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So there are seven statements in here. Some of them are combined. They they get at the same point, but let me walk through, through these. First of all, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Um, an heir is someone who is set to receive something, usually something great, right? All things will be given to Christ. He will receive all glory and honor and power. He will receive the church as his beloved bride. He is the one to whom all things are coming, all things are working As Jesus himself said, after his death and resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So all things are moving towards and for Christ, but then also through whom he also created the world. So Jesus, as God incarnate, was involved in the creation of the world. Uh, The biblical authors consistently speak of Jesus, Jesus as the one through whom God created all things. So in John, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In 1 Corinthians, one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, it's difficult to fully understand what it means that the world was created through Jesus and how that might differ from the world being created by the Father and what exactly that means in the Trinity, in the Godhead. But the important part here is that Nothing was made without him. He was involved in creation in a necessary way. And if you put these first two statements together, heir, Jesus as an heir, is a forward-looking glory. He has glory coming to him as the heir of all things. And then his role in creation is a backward-pointing glory. This is just another way of saying that Jesus is eternal. Eternal. He was there in creation. He'll be there in the end. He's has always existed, will always is, always exist. All things exist through him and for him. Now, that might not sound new or earth shattering to you, but imagine that. Imagine yourself a couple centuries, a few centuries, not centuries, decades, after Jesus, that guy who lived. Imagine hearing that message. The author of Hebrews is making this claim a few decades after Jesus walked on the earth, and he's saying that man whom many of you saw and encountered was more than a man. He was the creator of the world. If you've been in church for long, you're used to hearing Jesus is God. But really, this man who was born, who lived, who taught, who did many things, who died, who rose again, whom people saw and heard and touched and ate with, was Almighty Creator God, dawning flesh and blood. This is a central cr- claim of Christianity. Any other view of Jesus is not Christianity. As the the writers of the Nicene Creed and all, you know the other early creeds were so clear to make to state, Jesus is God with no asterisk, he's God. And what is implied in these first two statements is now made explicit in the next two. He goes on, he is the radiance or shining of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This means that Jesus doesn't merely point us to God, he doesn't merely give us an example of what God might be like. He doesn't merely teach us about God or call us to God. He is God. In looking at him, we see God. And so the reason that God is speaking through Jesus in these last days in a new way, the reason he is the heir of all things, the reason he is the one through whom the world was created, the reason he is the savior of the world, the reason that all glory and and honor and boasting belongs to him alone is because of who he is in the first place he's god he didn't become a god or become great because of what he did he was and is and always will be god now this means that we must seek to come to him not merely for some good advice some life hacks some interesting opinions and wisdom, but come to him as God overall to be worshipped and loved and trusted and submitted to. And there's a huge difference between those things. Huge difference. Our sinful hearts don't naturally want to come to Jesus as God. The, the tendency of many in our culture and the tendency of our sinful hearts is to view Jesus as somehow less than this. As a nice teacher, good example, interesting historical figure to to ponder and debate, it is tempting to merely be a fan of Jesus, take an interest in him, have some opinions of Jesus for conversation. But none of those things pose any threat to our pride. None of those things pose any threat to our selfish living, to our being a God unto ourselves. And we in the church need to be aware of this as well. We need to be aware of merely using Jesus to improve our lives, but not submitting to him. Using him to give ourselves an identity, an image over against those other people, but not submitting to him. Or of approaching Jesus merely as a body of beliefs and doctrines to identify with, but not as a personal God to be worshipped. All of that falls short if he is God. So consider for a moment your own heart. How do you approach, come to God? How do you relate to to Jesus? What is he to you? Do you acknowledge him as God, trust him as God, love and obey him as God, rejoice in him as God? What is the disposition of your heart? The next statement, as we move down the list here, makes no less a claim and is perhaps the most striking, obvious reason or, or suggestion or claim that he is of, of who Jesus really is. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. You, you really can't say it any clearer that Jesus has all the rights and authority, and power of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, put yourself in, 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 in this time of when this is written, of this man who walked the earth. He up, that guy upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then the last two statements are Kind of shift gears, and they're about what Jesus accomplished while he was on earth. It says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so one of the ways that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, one of the ways that Jesus shows us who God really is, and the glories and beauties and perfections of God is through his suffering and death in our place for our sins. Of course, we see Jesus' glory in his life, in his teachings, in his miracles, yes, of course. But also, we see Jesus displaying the glory of God as he goes to die. The author will make this clear in chapter 2, when he tells us he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Perhaps you've read that before, never thought about that, but think about that. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. You probably wouldn't like that said about yourself. He was crowned with glory and honor because he, he suffered and died. That's a unique kind of glory and honor. But it goes on to say, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now Hebrews is going to help us understand Jesus' death in many ways, again and again and again, and we'll keep coming back to this. This purification of sins that he makes, we are told, was accomplished, quote, through the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. He was the spotless perfect lamb in the sacrificial language that was offered and sacrificed in our place to atone for our sins, to bring us into a right relationship with God. The Bible teaches us that sin is an injustice, an evil that flows from our inner rebellion against God. And it leads to the punishment of eternal death and separation from God. And the Bible teaches us that God does not and cannot just forgive or just ignore our sin. No, something must be done. A payment must be made. A judgment must be given. Because God is perfectly holy and just and righteous. But into this dire situation, this this dire situation, these cold, hard facts of our situation become the very context for the display of God's grace. Become the very context for the announcement over and over again throughout Scripture that salvation is of the Lord. All of Scripture makes this announcement. Into this situation, which we have a hard time even accepting, we see God himself bearing the dreadful cost to purify us, and draw us to himself. And so, while we must behold the objective truths of our dire situation and what it required, we also must behold the compassionate heart of God that conceived of, that planned, that accomplished everything that was required. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life this is was god's plan to reveal his glory through his own willing conceived of death for the sins of unworthy people what a crazy thing that god would reveal his glory through that and we are absolutely right to continue to look at and behold the cross, to behold God's glory in the shed blood and body of Jesus again and again and again as we do each week in communion. Because in that event, we see the glory and the radiance and the beauty and the perfections of who God is. Having gone through death and resurrection, Jesus, we are told, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You may, have, you may recall that we actually confessed that in the Nicene Creed, right? Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This means two things. It means that Jesus sits in the place of greatest authority. So, at the, at the right hand of the majesty on high means. But it also means he completed a task. He came what, He did what he came to do. He was what he was sent to do. Where Moses failed, where the people of Israel failed, where the sacrificial system and the priests and the temple were all insufficient to truly atone for sin, where all of us fail, Jesus succeeded. It, was fin- it is finished, he said from the cross, and he sat down in the, the right hand of the majesty on high. Mic drop. It's finished. And this was God's plan all along. Jesus was plan A all along. That's what Hebrews is showing us. Jesus is a better, and greater Moses, a greater priest, a greater temple, a greater sacrifice. He inaugurates a greater covenant, brings us to a better, more lasting rest, is the founder of a better faith because he is what all of those things we're pointing forward to and preparing for. From beginning to end, Salvation is of the Lord. It is what he does for us, and he gets the glory. And that's how I want to end. I want to turn to the very end of Hebrews to drive this home. The last, or a couple of the last verses, chapter 13, verse 20 and 21 say this. Now may the God of peace who brought you again, brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. To whom be glory forever and ever. Two things to notice as you put that all together. First of all, it's clear that getting our doctrine, our thinking, our beliefs about Jesus is absolutely important. Getting them correct is absolutely important. This book begins by making a case for Jesus' true identity. And that theme runs throughout this book. It is absolutely important that we know who Jesus is We won't grasp it fully, but it's important that we work to grasp it accurately, to know and behold who he really is. But secondly, it's absolutely critical that we move from knowing Jesus to glorying Jesus, giving glory to Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. The point of showing the identity and the significance and worth of Jesus, the overall supremacy of Christ The point in showing that is not just for us to get our doctrine right, but for us to give Him appropriate glory, to live in appropriate ways before Him forever and ever. It is so that we would be people who live for His glory because we've seen who He is. So that the dispositions, the tunings, The directions and affections of our hearts would be directed to Him rightly and His glory. So that we would be a new people, new creations, loving, trusting, worshiping, and obeying God in Christ from the heart, from this day into eternity. And note that I said God in Christ. God is in Christ, Christ is God. We are not shortchanging God the Father by worshiping Jesus. Rather, God is glorified as we make much of Jesus. Which could also be the point of, one of the points of Hebrews. Let's pray.